Luke 18 is where we'll be this morning. We'll start uh, in verse 9 and we'll work to verse 17. Um, the, the parable that Jesus is about to tell us um, is how we rightly approach God's throne. And so I think before we move any further in this series, we have to kind of understand uh, why we pray and how we pray, because there's a right way to approach God and there's a wrong way to approach God. And so what Jesus is going to do uh, with his disciples here in Luke 18, he's going to unpack this idea that there's a right way and a wrong way. And so he tells this parable, which is a short story, kind of an analogy to tell you what the kingdom of God is like. And so when he tells a parable, he's telling you, my economy, my kingdom is like this, and the world's economy is very, very different. And so he tells this parable uh, that's going to be very different than how we would do things as human beings here on earth, but God, who's divine, has another way that he wants us to approach him. So Luke 18, we'll start in verse 9. This is the parable that he tells. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So here's the context. He's saying there's some in this room that think they are righteous, and this, this is the parable um, that I'm going to tell you. So he says, and he treated other, uh, others with contempt. Two men went up to, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so here you have this parable of a tax collector and a Pharisee. And as they approach God's throne, the one says, God, I'm thankful that I'm not like everyone else. Now, it's a harsh prayer, but it's in the end, it's, it's not the worst prayer that you could possibly pray. So he's just saying, look, I, God, I thank you. I thank you that I'm not like other men. In other words, he's giving credit to the fact that he's not like other men to God. He's saying, I'm crediting you, God, for not making me like other men. And then he's saying, I'm, I'm thankful also that I'm not even like this guy over here, this tax collector, this scoundrel who harms people just to raise the taxes. I'm, I'm thankful that I'm not like him. So listen, don't act like you've never prayed that way, all right? I mean, I know we can sit here and be really hard on the Pharisee, but listen, we can pray that way. We can say, God, I am thankful that I'm not like this person over here. Like, I remember when we first got married, Jess and I, we were in our first year, and we were arguing um, a lot in the first year. And so we thought, man, is this going to work, right? And we had uh, a little hangout time with another couple. That's what you do when you first get married. You find other married couples and try to hang out with them and we said we're going to play a board game and that's it's just funny that's what you do before you have kids all right 
Um, and so we got Monopoly out, and we're playing this game, and we watched this couple also in their first year of marriage. They began to argue and bicker. I can't believe you, you, you sold him Boardwalk and not me. And it just becomes this really personal thing, and he just kind of laughed it off. And she got mad and slams her money down and runs into the uh, bathroom and locks herself in the bathroom for 45 minutes. Now, what makes that weirder is that it was our bathroom that she locked herself in for 45 minutes. And so I'm like, hey, it's been, you know, uh, we got to get out of here. And, um, and so when they left, finally she came out of the bathroom. We didn't finish the game. I said, I love you, honey. Right? Thank you that not locking yourself in a stranger's bathroom. I really appreciate that. And so we sometimes have the tendency to... Thank God that we're not like other people. Uh, thank you, God, for making me different. And so at its core, yeah, it's, it's a little arrogant. It's a little harsh. So the problem is not just the fact that he's looking down on other people. It's actually the thing that he believes makes him right to come before the throne. Are you tracking with that? The problem isn't that he's looking down on other people. That's one problem. But it's a minor problem to the bigger problem. The bigger problem is... He believes, he, he, he believes in himself is enough is why he has the right to come and approach this throne. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. See the reason? It's me following the old law. It's me tithing. That's why God loves me. It's me obeying the law. That's why God's God loves me. And if you contrast this statement with his statement to the tax collector, it's drastically different. Notice the tax collector, what he says in verse 13. Tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. So you have tax collector's posture. He's standing far off. Will not even lift his eyes up. He's utterly broken. He's saying, God, be merciful for me, for I am a sinner. Now, you take these two and you put them all the way. Let's just fast forward to the great white throne of judgment. You have this tax collector. You have this Pharisee. And God looks at them and says, why should I let you into my kingdom? The Pharisee is going to say is, because I tithe. I don't cuss. I don't drink. I don't smoke cigarettes. I don't watch rated R movies unless they're about the passion of the Christ. And then it's okay. And my church attendance is perfect. And I'm allowed to come before you. So everything is about his performance. That is why he should be allowed to come into the presence of God. Now, the Pharisee, you ask the same question to, why would you, why should I allow you into my kingdom? The, the, or the tax collector says, you shouldn't. I'm a sinner. It's only by your mercy. And so one is a proud re response. That is a, I did this, God, therefore you owe me. And the other one is a humble response and says, I did nothing, you did everything. And so when we think about how we pray, we have to look at these things. The irony is the very thing that the Pharisee 
was boasting in is the very thing that was, is the yoke of slavery in Acts 15. In, Acts, in, in Galatians chapter 3, the, the Old Covenant, it's called a schoolmaster. It's not supposed to, to usher you into the kingdom. It's actually supposed to show you how sinful you are. But this is the thing that he's boasting in. What, is, what would the tax collector boast in? He's boasting in not himself, but the one that he's standing in front of. And so there's, there's an approach difference there that you're going to see. And then we see what Jesus explains next in verse 15. Now, they were bringing even the infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called to them, saying, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such belongs to the kingdom of God. Verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So here you have people bringing children to, the, to Christ, and the disciples are correcting. He says, no, no, no. Let the children come to me. And then he, he gives this kind of analogy of, listen, this is how you're supposed to approach God as a child. And so some people have taken that and kind of run with it. Like, so we've had childlike faith, which means we're supposed to be kind of biblically dumb. Like, okay, we're supposed to look at the Bible like a child. We're not supposed to know the deep things of God because the deep things of God is going to confuse us and not, it, it will cause us not to have this childlike faith. Listen, that is not what this passage is about at all. If anything, you read later on with the apostles, when you read the, the letters in the New Testament church, it's all about knowing God rightly and growing deeper in him. So it's not against depth. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's actually talking about us approaching him as we are relying on him for utter dependence. Let me, let me just give you an example of that. Um, I have two boys, and um, they love the beach. And I don't know any redhead person that honestly says they love the beach um, because we get burned badly when we go to the beach. And I like pools, swimming in the pool rather than the ocean. And um, my youngest son has my same complexion, very fair Skin. And so he and I like the pool um, because we're going to get burned if we're out there on the you know, shore and waves crashing and you know, getting rid of our like 3,000 proof lotion that we use. Um, and so we have fun in the pool. And now if you ask my two-year-old after the service if he likes to swim, he will tell you yes. My two-year-old cannot swim. All right. Now, he thinks he can swim. Why? Because he's in the pool with his daddy, and his daddy holds him up, and I bob him, and here's a wave, and, you know, all of these things. And by the way, anyone who's in their mid-30s likes the pool better than the ocean because we grew up watching the movie Jaws, and we like to be in the pool better than the ocean. And so I, I you know, I bob him up and down, and he thinks he swam. Ben, Gideon, did you swim today? Yes. Did you have fun? Yes. He did not swim. His daddy held him up the entire time. If I dropped him... He's going to go straight to the bottom. Now, he thinks he is, uh, in and of himself, independent of me. He thinks that he could be on the Olympic swim team, but he cannot. His dad is the one who holds him up. And so there is a childlike faith 
to my son when he sees me. It's kind of an ignorant faith, if you will, but he acknowledges that I am the one who holds him up. He acknowledges that he is utterly dependent on me. And so when Christ tells us to come to receive the kingdom, we have to come like a child. It's really literally feeling the weight of our hopelessness, that the God of the universe is the only one who can save us and sustain us, and we are fully dependent on him. And this is where I believe true humility lies. It begins with acknowledging who God actually is. And interestingly enough, we see this example right away in the early church. So let me give you that example in Luke. Let's turn to Acts 4. I'm going to give you one more example. I'm going to spend some time here this morning. Acts 4. See the same thing. Utter dependence on God is where we begin. We realize that He is sovereign in control of all things. We are utterly dependent on Him. And that is exactly what you begin to see here in the early church. In the book of Acts, um, you see is a really a prequel to Luke. So Luke starts telling us about Jesus and what Jesus Christ has done. That he died on the cross for our sins in our place, rose from the grave. He conquered the penalty of Satan, sin, and death. And we see who Jesus is. We see his resurrection. We see his ascension in the, in the very beginning of Acts where before he goes to heaven, he's with his disciples 40 days, telling them what the kingdom of God is like. And so Acts is a continuation of the book of Luke. And it's to tell us what now who Jesus is, but also what Jesus' church would be. And so you have in Acts Two, an explosion of the gospel. The gospel explodes in Jerusalem. It's beginning to spread. And then you begin to see the church fall under great persecution. Because the gospel is making such an impact, it's offending a lot of religious leaders because it's, it's going against the very fabric of what they teach and what they believe. And so here you have uh, some of the religious elite really persecuting some of the first pastors. So they were former disciples, now they're apostles, now they're pastors of this church in Acts. And you have Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, and they begin to get beaten for the gospel. Right away, just a few chapters in, after the gospel kind of explodes in Jerusalem and spreads, now you have persecution taking place. And so you have these these men, these Sanhedrin here in Jerusalem, they're challenging Peter and John, and they're saying uh, to stop preaching the gospel. And I love it because it says they threatened them, but they could not stop uh, speaking of what they had seen and heard. Great verse in Acts chapter 4. And then you even see later that these men are marveling at Peter and John because Peter and John were uh, obviously uneducated and untrained men, but they realized they had been with Jesus. Wonderful, wonderful statement. If only that could be said about us this morning. And so you began to see this church falling under tremendous persecution. Peter and John just gotten threatened and beaten. And what happens? Well, they go back to the church in Acts 4. And this is where we'll pick up in verse 23. Acts 4, 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, notice what happens. These First pastors of the church, they don't call a pastor's meeting, they go to the church. It says they go to their friends. Some of your translations might say they went to their own company. But Luke, the writer, is telling us that he went to the whole church. And notice what the whole church does 
when persecution is confronting this church, notice what happens. And when they heard it, they what? Are you all awake this morning? I mean, they heard it. They lifted their voices, something that you just did not do just now. Um, When they heard it, they did what? Looks good. Lifted their voices together to God and said, listen to this prayer, y'all. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who through your mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. So here you have the world collapsing on the early church and they respond in prayer. Now, that is not how we respond when our worlds collapse. For, For Ben Tugwell, when my world begins to collapse, the very first thing I do is I rush into prayer and I blurt out the problem. God, this is the problem in my life right now. This is the problem in my marriage right now. This is the problem in my thoughts right now. This is the problem with relationships right now. Would you just fix this problem? That's, that's how we typically pray. When we're confronted by a problem, we say, this is the problem. But notice what happens. They acknowledge God first. They have the problem. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in it. This is who they acknowledge first. They began really approaching God through worshiping him first. Even in the midst of great persecution, something that probably most of you in this room have never even faced. Especially the way that they're seeing it in Acts 4. And so, he then moves, they then move to a quote that they see in the Bible. So they see God, they acknowledge God as sovereign over all things, and they go immediately to who God is because they go back to his word. What does God's word say? So they quote from Psalm chapter 2, an exact quote where David is recalling how the Gentiles have started a war with Israel's kings. And the way that David answers this uh, issue of the Gentiles coming in persecuting our kings, he says they're not just persecuting um, the kings of Israel, they're actually persecuting the anointed, God, the Messiah. We'll see later on that means Messiah. He didn't know that, but he's saying they are persecuting God. And so the way that the New Testament church would have read this is, listen, when they persecute us, they're really going against God himself. It's their hatred toward us is really because they hate God. And because of the language of the Old Testament, you're letting the New Testament interpret the Old Testament, saying, listen, the anointed, the Messiah is the one that they are persecuting. If you notice later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, when Saul, who's breathing threats on the Christians, and when God confronts Saul, who later became Paul, who later wrote most of the New Testament, he says, Saul... Why are you persecuting me? Even though he's persecuting Christians, he's saying, why are you persecuting me? The reason why he says that is because his hatred toward God is why he treated other people that way. And so the very thing that 
this church is drawn to here in Acts 4 is they are remembering God is sovereign, and then they also go back to God's word. And they begin, really, this is a prayer of worship before God, even in the midst of persecution. Look at verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, against, uh, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal in signs and wonders and perform through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Wonderful, wonderful prayer. God, as I'm facing persecution, would you help your servants, all of us, to be more bold in the gospel? And so it's almost like a a negative effect for the persecutors because they persecute the Christians, and what happens when the Christians are persecuted? They pray. And what happens when they pray? They pray for boldness. And what happens when they pray for boldness? They get more bold to share the gospel. So they share the gospel, and when it happens when they share the gospel, they're bold. When it happens when they're bold, they're persecuted. What happens when they're persecuted? They pray, and then it just continues to go around and around because what the very thing that they're the, the persecution is not slowing them down at all. It's actually creating them to approach God's throne and coming and showing we are utterly dependent on you. Therefore, it's causing them to be bolder and bolder with the gospel. And I love the language that is being said here because they are attributing everything that is happening in their lives to God. The persecution that we are under right now, God, is because you have put us in this place. You are the cause of all of it. Therefore, we don't hold a grudge towards you, God. We worship you all the more because it's causing us to become more bold in the gospel. And you say, you're the maker of heaven and earth. Do whatever you want because it's only going to further your cause. That's the prayer that we see here. It's acknowledging God for who he is and responding to him Accordingly, John Reisinger says this in the, uh, a wonderful little book, and I encourage you all to, to pick it up it's on Amazon. It's a little short pamphlet called The Sovereignty of God in Prayer. He writes, God was the master of the ceremonies and in control of the whole thing, just as he was at Calvary, as just as he was in Acts 4 when the disciples were beaten. God is the one that they acknowledge in all of it. And you think about that in our own lives. When we approach God's throne, when we approach him in prayer and the things that we are approaching him about, we have to acknowledge that thing that you're approaching him about. He is sovereign over that thing. He's actually putting that in your life so that it would cause you to pray, so that it would show that, once again, you are utterly dependent on him. So this church is not angry at God. Rather, it creates in them a greater affection and worship of him. And this is the danger. If we try to remove God from persecution and suffering, we end up with a very distant, careless, and powerless God. And that view of God will not sustain you because it's not a biblical view of God. 
And I've heard people say that God is only sovereign over the good things. The bad things, he's not sovereign over. Well, that stinks because I really need him when the bad things happen. I really want him to be sovereign over the bad things, too. Because I want a God who is both sovereign and good, and he's going to sustain me regardless of what I am facing. And so, the other aspect of how these believers were sustained was not just through understanding that God was sovereign, but understanding God's word. Notice there when they quote uh, Psalm chapter 2 in Acts 4 verses 24 through 26, they're remembering something about God because it was written in his word. And it wasn't them just remembering a verse about God, it's them remembering God's character as it's displayed in his word. And if if there's anything that I think will mess up our prayer lives is not seeing God rightly. Because if you look back in Luke 18, what's the problem with the Pharisee? The problem with the Pharisee is that he doesn't understand God rightly. He doesn't understand the gospel rightly. He believes that there's something he can do to obtain the favor of God. He's not understanding the gospel. He's not understanding the word rightly. So he has this idea of God that if I do these things, therefore you owe me. Wrong view of God. And if we are in the word, we begin to understand who he is, and therefore we know how to approach him rightly. And so I can think back to when I was a, a young believer. I could think back to my prayers. I have like a prayer journal that I had when I was like a freshman in college, and it's just embarrassing to read. Like I just hope like my boys never find those things. Um, and so I, I just, um, Lord, help me get a hemp bracelet, you know, for the 90s. Um, and so it's just really bad prayers. And, and so, but the more I've grown to understand God more, uh, the better my prayers are. And, and I actually know how to approach him better. I'm not saying, listen, if you're a new believer, I'm not saying you can't approach God. I'm not saying that at all. But uh, as you grow to understand him more, you, you grow to understand how to approach him better. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example of how bad, un, a bad understanding of God messes up with our prayer life and, and really how we live. Like, we, I had um, a uh, kind of a, a weird dorm situation where a bunch of us lived, we're all friends, we all of us lived kind of close together, kind of like a weird commune thing when I was in college. And uh, we would carpool because it was really hard to find a parking space at our school. So I would carpool with this girl that I knew, um, and she loved, like, hip-hop. And so every morning, you know, this is early 2000s, so we're, you know, if you want to go and take a ride with me, you know, hey, must be the money. Every single, you know, money. And, you know, we're, we're you know, Nelly and all this. I mean, it's just terrible stuff. And so we are... Uh, Every single morning, and I, I'm in class, like, if you want to go, you know, like, it's remembering. And, and so, um, but that was our routine. So every time we go to class, it's some kind of hip-hop, you know, jam from early 2000s. And so I would remember, though, that if it was an exam, that or a test that we had to do, N- Nelly was not heard of. No, Passion Praise CD, you know? All right. I'm coming back to the heart of worse. Almost getting a wreck. And, you know, just really, oh, you know, oh, I love God, you know. And, and so what was happening there, you kind of know what's happening, don't you? We're, we're trying to get on God's good side, 
because the exam's coming up and we got to get God. Okay, he's got to be on. He, we love you, God. You know, we love you, right? And um, I know it's, hey, must be the money during the week. But listen, right here on this exam, we need you to show up. And so, I, like, that's what we did. And I know, like, that's a crazy analogy, but this is what we were really doing. We're saying, we're doing this, God, therefore you owe us. I know we didn't study like we should have, but passion praise should get us at least a letter grade higher than we anticipated. And so this bad view of God um, and this really bad understanding of how God even works really messed up even how we pray for just something as simple as an exam. And, and I think that this, okay, multiply just that small example into bigger issues in your life of sickness, of death, if you believe those things about God, it's totally going to mess up the way that you view God. I used to believe that something bad happened to me because I didn't do my quiet time that morning. And he's just punishing me because I didn't do this. Or something bad happened to me because I didn't share the gospel with that person at the gas station. So I had this view of God, like, if I do this, you're going to do this. And it's, again, it's that attitude of the Pharisees. He's like, no, the right approach to God is exactly what we saw in Luke 18. I'm not worthy. I did nothing. Christ, you did everything. That's the right way to approach the throne. And so... How many times do we approach God that way? I mean, I look at this text and I am gripped by the beauty of Acts 4. When they face this persecution, they don't go into a, we didn't deserve persecution. Look, we're the true spiritual Israel. You've redeemed us by the cross. Look at all the, the people before us they loved your law and they disobeyed. Look, look, we're obedient to you. We're facing persecution. We don't deserve this. That could have totally been their prayer, but no, it's not their prayer at all. Their prayer is, Sovereign Lord, after facing persecution, who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them to do whatever your plan has predestined to take place. Wonderful prayer. And I've want that to be my prayer when I face hardships or trials of various kinds in my own life. Because those are the prayers that sustain us. Like outside of the Bible, it's hard to find prayers like that. Um, I found a few. One would be a book I'd encourage you to, to get, as well as um, The Sovereignty of God in Prayer by John Reisinger. But also, this is a good little book on Puritan prayers. It's called Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. And so from this collection of prayers, uh, you're going to see them facing persecution as well, facing difficulty, facing hardship. And a lot of their prayers are not just requests to God. I want you to see that. A lot of their, request, their prayers are not just them saying, here's something I want to pray about. Here's, here's what's going on in my aunt's life. Here's what's going on in my cousin's life. No, it's just acknowledging God for who he already is. And, and look, there's, there's this, I'll just read you this prayer. It's called contentment. And this is their prayer of contentment. Notice the language that we see here by the Puritans when they pray. Heavenly Father, if I should suffer need and go unclothed and be in poverty, make my heart prize thy love. Know it, be constrained by it, though I be denied all blessings. It is thy mercy to afflict and try me with wants. 
For by these trials I see my sins and desire severance from them. Let me willingly accept misery. Anybody ever pray that? Lord, help me willingly accept misery. This is what they say. Let me willingly accept misery, sorrows, temptations. If I thereby feel sin as the greatest evil and be delivered from it with gratitude to thee, acknowledging this as the highest testimony of thy love. Wonderful, wonderful prayer. It's acknowledging God for who he is and responding to what they know about his character. And therefore, whatever God you put in my place, I know it's for my good because it's all a testimony of your love for me. You've proven your love through the cross of Christ. And it's this prayer that we just don't pray like that today. There's this honesty and this transparency and this submission to God. And I think there's a problem why we don't pray, pray like this today. Because I think in our culture, in Christian culture, in American culture, what we have is a major worship problem. We have a major worship problem. If you look back in Acts 4, in verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. What do you see? It's the very first time they make a request to God. Out of the entire prayer, there's multiple verses here that build up who God is and what his character is like and how we should respond to your character. Now, finally, here's our request. Here's why we're coming to you. And also, help us to be bold. Not get us out of this persecution. Help us to be bold. And so the bulk of their prayer is about worship. And from rightly worshiping God... They bring their request to God. And I think that's different from our culture because in our culture, worship is something that is something that we don't understand or really grasp. I think worship sometimes is just the time that we sing in church. Listen, that's one of the times that we worship, but that's not all worship is. It's not all when we sing. Well, let's just say that it is, though. Let's just say that all worship was is Singing. Um, I still think we would have a worship problem. Because like worship songs today often do not help us understand who God is. Therefore, it's hard for us to be sustained by the truths that we see in the songs today. You might call me an old man. That's fine. But I like songs that can take me to the depths of who God is and therefore, I can know how to respond. And that, to me, is true worship. Like, here's what I mean. If you go to a funeral or a wedding today, what's the songs that are often picked at funerals and weddings? They're old songs that might be redone, but they're songs that help you remember who God is. Amazing grace. Come thou fount before the throne. It is well. Right? Be, uh, come behold the wondrous mystery, even newer songs that bring out the truth and the richness of who God is. And the reason why these songs are timeless is because we remember who God is. Here's what I mean. I don't think God's great dance floor is going to be played at anyone's wedding anytime soon. All right. I don't even think some of the songs that we hear today will be even remembered 10 years from now. 
I can think back to the songs that I sang in college that really show nothing of the depths of God, and I don't remember them anymore. They're done. And I, the tragedy is songs now are written just to create a hook and something that's catchy, but that says nothing about who God is. And why is it that when we suffer, we want to hear, it is well with my soul? It's because we see the truth in the scripture that helps us to see God rightly. Therefore, we can respond to him rightly. And that is what worship is. And so, listen, it's not just this creative hook that when the bridge builds up with the U2 sounds in the background that makes uh, worship. It's actually... The, the depth of God being displayed and us responding to that because we're seeing that's what your character is like. This is how I want to obey you because that is the way your character is. And so I think there's something really great in when we pray, when we think about worship. Worship is seeing God rightly and responding to him by the way he is. I say, you can't be a great prayer unless you are a great worshiper. And you can't be a great worshiper unless you're a student of God and His Word. You have to be a student of God and His Word in order to understand what worship is. And you can't be a great prayer unless you understand what worship is. And look at what happens next in Acts 4 and verse 31. It says this. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a uh, great theologian, says this is the, the why that God shook the building. He says, it's like the way that you pray. It's like God saying, it's like God saying to the church, I like the way that you pray. I like your confidence and power. And I'll give you a little sample to reaffirm your faith. You're on the right track is what he's doing. Showing them, I affirm this prayer. And this prayer isn't this, God come down, God do this. No, it's God, this is who you already are. And because of who you are, we're going to worship you. And we're going to trust you with our lives. And our lives are in your hands completely. You are sovereign in control of all things. Help us. To continue to preach your word with boldness. And so there's the right way to approach the throne. And there's a wrong way. The right way is seeing God as who he is. And responding to him. The wrong way is boasting in ourselves. And believing that what we have. Is enough to, to get to and approach the throne of God. So here you have in Acts 4. Confidence in God's sovereignty. And I believe that's where the true foundation of prayer lies, confidence in God's sovereignty. The second thing that you see is asking God for the right things. They're asking God for boldness. I think that's a true test of where our prayers really lie, where our hearts really lie. What are the things that you actually pray for? So they're, pray, they're praying for God, give us boldness. That's what they're praying for. So what are the things that you are actually praying for? And if the things that we're praying for are seemingly trivial, there's nothing wrong with asking God for anything. But what really takes up the bulk of your prayers? And that's really the test of how you see God rightly. Do you even see God rightly? And the last thing that we see in chapter 30 or verse 31 is a felt realization that 
God is powerful in prayer. And I want, I want you to see these things this morning because most of us, we lack prayer and we lack wanting to pray and, and we think it's just a discipline problem. And, and look, we can make lists on our steering wheels and our um, our mirrors in our bathroom if we want. And those are fine to kind of instill that discipline in you. But let me just argue that it's not just a discipline problem. It's a worship problem. And it's a desire to know him problem. And I think when we kind of say, God, would you give us a deep affection for Christ and his word? I think that is the beginning of how we want and desire to talk to him, communicate to him, and ask him. So it's a major worship problem. So this morning, if you are coming in here and saying, God owes me because I've done these things. I've showed up to church. My attendance has been good this month. I'm gonna, I gave to the $100 campaign that we did to give to missionaries. Or I'm going to life I'm serving on a team. And therefore, God, you owe me. Listen, I'm just going to argue that's the beginning of a worship problem. How we... Avoid a worship problem as seeing God for who he is. Saying, Lord, I can offer you nothing, but you have done everything in my place. And because of that, I can approach the throne in prayer. And when I pray, God, it's a desire to know you and respond accordingly. So maybe our prayer should be, Lord, help us to pray. Help us to be better worshipers of you. Help us to be in your word Help us to trust you that you are in sovereign and control in all things. And I think when we begin that humble heart of prayer, that's a great place to start for us as we start this series. So let's pray. Father, help us this morning as we come to you.